Hello and welcome to the Portugal Street Philosophy Podcast, where each episode we take a deep dive into a philosophical topic and try to get to the cutting edge of the field with world-leading experts. I'm your host, Eric Chen. And joining me today as co-host is the president of the Philosophy Society, Karina Vasiliadis. Thanks for joining us, Karina. Thank you, Eric. It's lovely to be here. This episode, our topic will be how to balance lives and livelihoods in the face of a pandemic. Our guide to the topic is Professor Alex Vorhoover. Alex Vorhoover is a professor of philosophy at the London School of Economics and a part-time visiting professor of ethics and economics at Erasmus University of Rotterdam. His work deals with the theory and practice of distributive justice, especially as it relates to health, as well as rational choice theory and moral psychology. He is the author of the book Conversations on Ethics. Most recently, he co-authored a policy brief for T20, a think tank accompanying this year's G20 summit titled Assessing the Well-Being Impacts of the COVID-19 Pandemic and Three Policy Types, Suppression, Control, and Uncontrolled Spread. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Professor Alex Vorhoven. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. Okay, so just to jump right into the topic, like in the news these days, we often hear a lot about trading off the performance of the economy against the lives and health of the population. Could you just uh, give an overview of what you see as the fundamental sources of value that we're actually weighing up when we consider various um, policy proposals or ways to deal with the pandemic. Good. So um, there does at least appear to be in, in some respects a trade-off between um, policies that will suppress uh, coronavirus, at least in some circumstances, and then um, cause great economic losses. So that's the livelihood part. And on the other hand, uh, saving um, lives, which is also part of these, of uh, say, a lockdown policy, right? So lockdowns have, at least in uh, many circumstances, the impact of decreasing uh, economic growth uh, or causing large economic losses. And on the other hand, um, saving more lives uh, that would be lost due to the coronavirus pandemic. I have to emphasize, though, that this trade-off is not undisputed and it depends a lot on context. So some have argued that if you get in really early, like for example, New Zealand did go in early and hard, so to speak, then a lockdown, while it's painfully economically in the short run, will be economically better than letting the virus rip through your population because that also has economic costs. Um, and it will also be better in terms of health. Um, so the types of trade-offs we're facing now in, in many countries um, aren't perhaps inevitable, but once the virus is spread, there clearly does seem to be a, a trade-off between lives and livelihoods. So how should we conceptualize this? Now, uh, lots of people reject that we can put a price on life. So famously, recently, the uh, governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, said, uh, in response to pressure to ease the lockdown uh, in order to improve economic growth. Uh, he said, I'm not going to put a price on life and Americans don't put a price on life. And that sounds very uh, compelling when you first hear it, but um, many welfare economists, that's to say economists who also are part-time philosophers who think about how to balance and trade off different goods in our lives, would reject that because they say implicitly, we always make trade-offs between health and wealth, because together these make up, these contribute to our well-being. So let's talk a bit about how we can make these trade-offs. Um, 
One instrument that economists use is called the value of a statistical life. And they say, look, Eric, um, you make choices all the time. For example, uh, you make a choice to purchase extra private health insurance. Right? You can be covered on the NHS or you can be covered for more things, but you have to pay. And suppose that uh, you lower your chance of dying in a year by 1% at the cost of uh, paying £1,000 a year extra for health insurance. Then you've, and you think that's about the tipping point. If they charged me more, I wouldn't do it. If they charged me less, I would say, yeah, absolutely. £1,000 a year is just about the tipping point. Now, what you would be revealing in that choice is that a 1% chance uh, of death is worth about £1,000 to you, reducing your chance of death in a year by, uh, by 1% is worth £1,000 to you. So that would reveal, and economists say, that if we have um, 100 people like you, 100 Eric's, 100 Eric's together would each pay £1,000 to reduce their chance of death by 1%. We would expect then in this population of 100 Eric's, there to be one fewer death in return for an expenditure of a hundred thousand pounds. So this population of Eric's would reveal, the economist would say, that uh, the reduction of one death, one statistical death, we don't know who, is worth a hundred thousand pounds. Not more because you wouldn't be willing to pay more than a thousand each. Not less because you would be willing to pay up to a thousand pounds. Now I've given a rather low estimate Perhaps I'm imagining you don't value your life very much, Eric, although you seem to be enjoying yourself. Um, for developed countries, uh, especially, for example, the United States, lots of studies suggest that this is really in the order of 10 million. So they calculate the value of a statistical life by the revealed choices, uh, the revealed trade-offs that individuals make on their own behalf between income and chance of death. Right, if we could pause a bit on this revealed preference approach. Um, so mm -hmm. you say a bit about how this would, you know, many people would say maybe from a behavioral perspective that people have a lot of biases, maybe they tend to discount their well-being uh, every year at some fixed rate. So they're not really uh, good judges of sort of uh, how much a particular thing would actually well, uh, impact other lifetime well-being. Uh, what would uh, someone from a this uh, revealed preference perspective uh, say to that? Well, I think they'd simply have to admit that that's correct. I mean, uh, our, uh, it's well documented that, especially when dealing with low chance events, and in fact, you know, I, to keep it simple, I did 1% chance of death, but in fact, because that's also the chance of, a, a close to the chance of dying of coronavirus, if you're a random person in the population, at least on some estimates, it's about 0.6 or 0.7%. Um, but really what we're talking about is even smaller chances, typically. Um, and people are very bad at assessing low probability events and valuing them in terms of money explicitly. So it's not at all clear that we can use people's actual choice behavior in the face of these uh, low probability events where they may also not have good knowledge of what these chances really are to derive uh, an implied value of a statistical life. So that's clearly a problem. Um, there are several other problems. 
mean, one of them is uh, in terms of policy making, these values will depend on your income. So if you're very poor, then a thousand pounds a year to lower your chance of death it may seem a lot. Uh, if you're extremely rich, a thousand pounds a year to lower your chance of death by 1% is a bargain. So the implied value of a statistical life will be much higher if you're rich than if you're poor. And that would mean that if the government uses these numbers as welfare economists sometimes suggest they should do, that we would put a higher price, be prepared to put more resources into saving the rich than uh, saving the poor or protecting the rich from a risk than protecting the poor from a risk. And that would be extremely inegalitarian. Um, okay, so you mentioned that there are, of course, more problems and also per perhaps more arguments in favor. But is your tentative uh, kind of conclusion that this is not um, the kind of policy tool we want to use as a first pass when it comes to So I, I wouldn't use it for one, the reason that I mentioned that um, if we use individualized measures, we'd have to value the lives of the rich more than the lives of the poor. That's bad. Um, if instead, as is often the case, we use average measures. So for example, the United States EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, uses something like around uh, between seven and nine million dollars for a statistical life year. Um, and for the whole US population, so they, they simply use a kind of average. The problem there is then that we uh, fail to help the people that we might most want to help. So think of it as follows. Suppose in the context of coronavirus that we impose a lockdown without any uh, economic help and we impose a cost, a very large cost on poor individuals because they're the first to get fired, for example. Um, this may be a much larger cost than they would like to bear for the risk reduction. If we're using an av population average, that may look like good policy for the value of statistical life, even though it's bad from their perspective. So we have this dilemma if we use the value of statistical life. If we tailor it to individual measures, then we are prepared to pay more to save the rich than the poor. If we use averages, then we may impose on the poor costs that they don't want to bear. So it's bad both ways. There's a third reason why it's bad, which is Look, lives are not the right currency um, because uh, you, Eric, seem an, uh, a young man with a great life ahead of you. If you die, that's a much greater tragedy than if I die uh, because I'm already halfway through things and a bit worn down. And uh, so what we should really be looking at is life years lost rather than lives. And especially the coronavirus epidemic all this focus on lives is a mistake um, because the, uh, it treats the death of a 20-year-old as equivalent to the death of a 70-year-old or an 80-year-old when they're not from a moral perspective because the 20-year-old has a lot more ahead of them than the 70- or 80-year-old would have if they didn't die at that time because everyone dies at some point. So I think we have to get rid of the lives idea and focus instead on life years and this measure has its these other problems right so you mentioned uh, life years so there are two other um kind of policy uh lens to look at that you mentioned in this policy right. brief uh the value of a statistical life year and a quality adjusted life year could you just briefly 
Yeah. So both of those take seriously this criticism that I just said about the, that it's not about lives but about life years lost. Um, the value of statistical life years simply does the same calculation that uh, I did for lives instead for uh, life years. So it's so to speak, it divides this ten million dollar sum for the value of statistical life uh, by the number of life years remaining in the population, and then it prices each year. Uh, equivalently. Um, the problem with that is, of course, it ignores quality of life, health-related quality of life. So uh, a, a life year lived in full health is much more valuable to you than a life year lived uh, with, for example, severe uh, uh, a respiratory impairment due to permanent lung damage due to COVID. And so we shouldn't value those two things equally we should be prepared to do more to restore you to full health than merely keep you alive with more limited lung function. That's where the quality comes in. So quality stands for quality adjusted life year. And that basically says, let's adjust the time you are alive for the health related quality of life you would experience in that time. So if we're gonna go for uh, some kind of health related well-being measure, then I think the quality makes the most sense. But still, it faces that dilemma, the same dilemma that the value of a statistical life faces, which is the poor would be willing to pay less for an additional quality than the rich. Um, so you would then value an additional life year for the poor lower than for the rich if you base it on their revealed choices. If you use averages, then again, you might impose a cost an economic cost on the poor that they're not willing to bear in order for more health. So among these three measures we've looked at, value of a statistical life, value of a statistical life year, and a quality, the quality is the best, but it's still not adequate. Right. Uh, could you say a bit more about, so it's quality adjusted, but surely this is also um, a somewhat uh, subjective judgment that might differ from people. Good, yes, so let's talk a bit about that, sort of that quality adjustment. So, um, yeah. again, economists don't like asking people outright, what do you think of something? They think that's just cheap talk. They prefer to ask people to make choices or trade-offs and then infer the values from these trade-offs. So how do we, for example, decide that uh, another 50 years with severely impaired lung function is about half as good as another 50 years in full health. Well, I'd say, Eric, imagine that you face substantially impaired lung function for the remainder of your life, and it's, you've got another 50 years ahead of you. How many years would you be willing to give up in order to be in full health? Yes, I wouldn't That's, trust my own judgment of that. You wouldn't trust your own judgment. Okay, so uh, how about Karina? You've got 50 years ahead of you with um, severe permanent shortness of breath or um, fewer years in perfect health. What would the tipping point be where you say, like, well, either I could go either way? Hmm, I'm not entirely sure because I think it, it there's this substantial amount of uncertainty with what I'm going to do with my life in either those five years or those 15, 50 years. Um, so I, I think given, given my kind of 
my high uncertainty I don't I'm not really sure which which I would go for because obviously I could have this plan to kind of live a very full life in those short years that I have but equally a sudden impairment might not necessarily cut off my ability to yeah. do something good given that impairment so it's it's difficult Absolutely. No, I agree these trade-offs are difficult. And this is uh, like Eric's point about the value of a statistical life. These trade-offs are highly uncertain and maybe they can't be trusted. Nonetheless, this is the type of trade-off that we use, that governments use in order to assess, um, at least roughly, people's implied valuation. So, for example, I could say, suppose I say, to keep it simple, 25 years in full health is equivalent to me to 50 years with severely impaired lung function. Because I love being outdoors, right? I love uh, having my kids right on my shoulders and running around in the park. And I'm prepared to give up quite a bit of life uh, in order to get uh, high, improve my lung function. Then the answer would be living in that uh, impaired state is half as good because 25 years in full health is equivalent to 50 years with this impaired state. Living in that impaired state is half as good as living in um, full health. Right. So okay. it's these types of trade-offs that reveal, according to health economists, the, Im the implied value that, for example, someone like me might put on that um, health state. So then if you extended my life for 50 years, but with permanent lung damage, that would be equivalent to giving me 25 years in full health or 25 quality adjusted life years. Right. Um, okay, so just to make sure that um, I have this clear. So you talked about these two statistical measures, one of value of the statistical life and the other of statistical life years, which you think is an improvement, but they face uh, two important issues. One is that uh, they tend to unacceptably uh, undervalue uh, poor lives. But if you go with an average uh, measure, they tend to produce policy recommendations that would disproportionately um, negatively impact poor populations again. And these count significantly against these statistical measures. And, uh, and did you say that the quality adjusted life years kind of doesn't face these same issues and would be the preferred one of the three? Well, no, it, the, the thing that the quality adjusted life years avoids is that um, it, uh, value of statistical life and value of statistical life year don't adjust for quality. They merely look at time that you're alive. Quality adjusted life year takes account of quality in the way we just looked at, but it still faces the same dilemma. If you uh, say, well, what is the economic value of a quality, a quality adjusted life year? If you simply look at people's revealed choices, a poor person will pay, will be willing to pay less because they have less money for an additional quality than a rich. And so should the government value the life years of the poor at less than the healthy life years, the quality adjusted life years of the rich? No. Um, but then the same problem arises if we use averages, then we might end up imposing economic burdens on the poor, which they themselves don't want. So there is a solution to all of this. Should we move to that? Yes. So you, yes. yeah, in the paper you mentioned that you actually privilege, or you prefer the the last one, which is social welfare analysis, as you could say. Yeah. So basically, the solution to all of this is to sit, recognize a very simple fact, which is that people's well-being is what matters, uh, and their well-being is a function of many things, 
but at the very least of health and wealth. And so what we should simply do is not look only at um, a simple measure of health or health-related quality of life or at a simple measure of income-related quality of life, but a measure that combines the two. And so then if we do this measurement roughly accurately, we would never, for the sake of, uh, so to speak, improving someone's situation, impose a burden on them that they don't want, or that would in fact make their situation worse. So um, simply going all out to a, an inclusive notion of well-being is uh, the solution, I think. Right. And could you sketch out what this would look like uh, in practice of uh, constructing a social welfare function that could be used in a situation like this? Like how would Good. I... Good. So there's a step between a notion of well-being and a social welfare function. Let me explain each. Sure. So well-being... Um, you can think of it as a, say, a function of at least two variables, right? So the more health you have, the better off you are, the more wealth you have, the better off you are. And this might combine in some uh, complex ways. And we might have some ways of estimating these. Again, they're imperfect, um, but uh, they're, they're different methodologies. Uh, one, for example, is a life satisfaction survey where you simply ask people on a scale from zero to 10, how satisfied are you overall with your life? considering your income and your wealth, and you can um, infer from their answers how important income is to them and how important health is to them, for example. Um, so you could uh, then use that function as a rough proxy for people's uh, life satisfaction measures and how different policies would impact them. But there are other methods as well. But then once you have a measure of well-being so defined, the next question is, well, a policy will improve some people's well-being. It might improve Karina's well-being, but lower your well-being, Eric. How do I decide whether that policy is worth it, whether the improvement in Karina's situation is worth the worsening of Eric's situation or of my situation? That's where this notion of a social welfare function comes in, where we say uh, Karina moves on a scale, say, from six to seven. Eric. Uh, well, Eric's well-being goes down from eight to seven. Is this a social improvement or not? Well, then we have different value judgments and which uh, take the form of a social welfare function. What's known as a utilitarian social welfare function will say, let's just maximize the sum total in our given population. So this is two people, Karina and Eric. Karina moved from six to seven on the well-being scale. Eric moved down from eight to seven. From a utilitarian perspective, the total remains unchanged. So this policy is a wash. We can either do it or not do it. Because all that a utilitarian function cares about is the total. But other functions don't care just about the total, but also about whether some people are worse off than others, whether there's inequality in the population. So note that in the situation where we started before the policy, Karina was assumed to be at six and Eric at eight. So there's inequality between the two of you. And after the policy, we assumed that we both moved to seven, you both moved to seven. So the same total, but more equally distributed. So if we care both about improving people's lives and about reducing inequality, then a, what's known as a 
egalitarian social welfare function will regard this policy as an improvement. Right. So as uh, at a first pass, or at least like one kind of intuitive way to carve it up would be to say the first part of measuring the welfare is this kind of empirical objective matter of fact about determining, you know, uh, the, the given welfare of people under this policy. And then the separate normative part is in uh, constructing the social welfare function where all your judgments about uh, weighing uh, different people's well-being and aggregating, uh, that would come in. Uh, so would you agree with this characterization of the, the two parts of the problem? Not quite. I think um, the first part is not entirely empirical because what makes for a person's well-being, what makes their life go well, is also a normative question. Now, of course, you need empirical information, especially if you want to give some weight to people's own judgments. What makes people happy uh, may be an important part of figuring out what um, what makes their lives go well overall, and that's an empirical question. But still, uh, it's a normative question whether, for example, you think people's answers are determinative of their well-being. So they're both normative questions. Um, and in, in relation to the second part, uh, there is also some empirical work to be done there. So uh, especially if you're a government and you want to represent the people whose tax money you're using and who you are coercing in the name of improved social welfare, then I think you have an obligation to take their views seriously. So we should not merely ask people what we think impacts their well-being. That's the first part, the first measure, the well-being measure. But we should also ask them how they believe we should make trade-offs among different individuals. And that asking them and taking their answers seriously doesn't mean that we accept anything they say. But it does mean, I think, that we should take it as one input into social deliberation. That's really helpful. And this is, of course, a really complicated field, but we're running up against the time limit a bit. So I guess if we just skip to the end of the movie, could you uh, give us your all things considered um, a most plausible take on theory of well-being and also what's your preferred social welfare uh, function or view on this? Well, that's difficult. Okay, so theory of well-being, I think, um, in the end, for public policy purposes, we have to draw up a list of uh, important contributions to well-being. So we can't simply ask people how satisfied are you with your life. I think that's too subjective and it has other problems as well. Um, we should, life satisfaction can be part of it, but we also have to focus on what's known as some more objective things. So uh, your level of income, your uh, functioning, your social contacts, etc. Um, so I think some level of what we should call objectivity there is important. Um, second, in relation to uh, the social welfare function, how we should distribute well-being among the individuals or how we should make difficult trade-offs, I strongly favor what's known as a pluralist egalitarian view in which we give weight to two aims. One is to improve people's lives. So the utilitarian has that correct. That's important to improve people's lives, but it's not the whole of the story. We also must try to reduce inequalities. And what you then end up doing is when you combine those two, uh, you give extra weight to improvements in the lives of those who are less well off than others. Those are especially valuable because they uh, contribute to two social aims. 
One is reducing inequality and the other is improving well-being. Okay, great. Thanks so much. And then now we'll move on to ask one of our uh, signature questions that we like to ask all our guests. Korea? Yes, thank you, Eric. Um, thank you, Professor Hoover, for your for, for taking the time to be here. Um, so we this part of the the podcast usually we just like to ask a very kind of open-ended question just to get your your own personal take on on some uh, big philosophical issues that are not too that do not require too much um, depth to go into um so our question uh, for you um is so if you could if you were confronted with an, an omniscient super intelligent oracle and you could ask one question what would you ask? How long will humanity last? Okay, fantastic, yeah. Fantastic. That's near the top of my list as well. <laughs> um, but thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your thoughts with us today, Professor Alex Borhuber. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.